Well, the message this morning is scripture heavy. What I mean by that is we will cover uh, quite a few passages of scripture this morning in the Old and the New Testament. And so I tell you that up front, and I want to give you the two main points right off the, right off the bat. The first one is that the entire Bible is valid in the Christian experience, not just the New Testament. Now, while it's true that we are a New Covenant people, we still have a share in the primal narrative, the story of the people of God. Because the Old Testament is not just a story, the Old Testament is our story. That's the first thing. The second thing we should understand, that Christ is not limited to the text of the New Testament. What I mean by that is that the entire Bible is a tapestry and the thread of Christ is woven through it from Genesis all the way through the last verse of Revelation. Now we see this concept verified in the Gospel according to Luke in chapter 24 when the two disciples were walking to the village called Emmaus and Jesus joined them but they didn't recognize him at first. And as they walked along, they were telling Jesus about the crucifixion of their Lord. And then Jesus says to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. He interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Those are the two points. So I guess that we can go ahead and just wrap up, go to lunch, and catch the kickoff at the Texans, right? You remember what I said about the Methodist pastor when he looks at his watch and what that means? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) So there's more. There's more. So this morning I want to start in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. And it reads like this. It says, now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the ordinances that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you are about to cross into and occupy, so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life and keep all his decrees and his commandments that I am commanding you, so that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, And observe them diligently, so that it may go well with you, and so that you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. And write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. See, as Moses prepared the Israelites to enter the land they had been promised, he was charged by God to lay out for the people the ground rules. The ground rules that God had established for them. We have to remember here that the majority of the Israelites that originally left Egypt, the ones who were first given the law at the base of Mount Sinai, all of those had passed away during the 40 years in the wilderness, most of them anyway. Moses is speaking here for the most part to their children and to those who were just children themselves when all the tribes left Egypt. And the Israelites had experienced what happens when you break God's law willfully. They lost 40 years in the wilderness. And they lost an entire generation before being allowed to cross into the land of milk and honey. So in Deuteronomy, Moses is charged with laying down the law for the new generation before they enter the promised land. Now, the book of Deuteronomy is divided into three sermons and some appendices afterwards. So as the tribes of Israel stand overlooking the promised land before crossing the Jordan, the first sermon that Moses delivers was found in Deuteronomy chapters 1 through 4, and it is a recalling of the history of Israel's disobedience. He's telling this new generation everything that had gone before. The second sermon is in Deuteronomy 5 through 26, and it is a review of the laws and commandments essential to life in the promised land. And then the third sermon, which is found in Deuteronomy 27 through 30, is a renewing of the relationship between God and and Israel, and it's centered on a discussion of decisions and consequences. Then chapters 31 through 34 deal with a transition of leadership from Moses to, to Joshua. Uh, the, chapter 32 is uh, the Song of Moses, which I encourage you to read. Some really beautiful poetry. Then there comes the final blessing of Moses on Israel, and then the final chapter in Deuteronomy is recounting Moses' death and burial in the land of Moab. So out of that, we get Mosaic Law, which was given to Moses and written in the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Pentateuch. It's from the Greek word penta, which means five, and tukos, which means a vessel. 
Now, in Hebrew, it's known as the Torah, which translates into English as the law. That includes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books. Now, among the many Mosaic laws that were decreed by God, there was one in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, the first part of which is commonly known as the Shema. The Shema is the Jewish declaration of faith. And in the Jewish tradition to this day, it incorporates this scripture from the Torah, along with a section from Deuteronomy chapter 11, and they put those two together into something called the mezuzah. Now the mezuzah is a parchment scroll, and it's placed into a box, and it's affixed to the doorposts and the gates in traditional Jewish homes, according to the law. Now here's a side note, but I think it's important. See, it's interesting to note here that the reciting of the Shema in the Jewish tradition is considered to be the acceptance of the sovereignty of God. To many, it is the essence of Judaism. And it acknowledges the oneness of God, the uniqueness of God, because there is none like him. Now, many have said that this contradicts Christian belief in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But if we look at the Shema in Hebrew, it reads like this. It says, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Eshad, which translates, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now, Adonai Eshad is an interesting phrase because in Hebrew, if I wanted to express the idea of a singularity, a single person, absolute unity in God, I wouldn't use the word Eshad. I would use the word Yashid. There's a point to this. Hang with me. In Psalm 22, verse 2, Isaac, son of Abraham, is referred to as Abraham's one and only son. And the word that they use in that phrase, one and only, is Yashid. Because there's only one Isaac, there's only one son of Abraham named Isaac. But in the Shema, the word that's used for one Lord is Ishad, which is a compound or collective unity, such as in one crowd, one group, one flock. It's like in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. See, the concept is two becoming one. One flesh made up of two persons. The word there is ishad. So the Shema in no way establishes the idea of a singular person God. In fact, the etymology, the word study, confirms that it's talking about more than one person contained 
in God. What an affirmation that is. That way back in Genesis, the beginning of God's Word, this idea of the Trinity is in the language of the Bible. There are 613 commandments in the Torah. That's a lot of law. And during the time of Jesus' ministry on earth, the go-to experts in all things Jewish were the rabbis. With so many laws and a variety of opinions among rabbis, there was a constant debate about which of the many commandments was the greatest. The Pharisees and Sadducees each had their own opinions about what commandment was the greatest. And they would often ask questions of the rabbis, seeking affirmation for their own points of view and usually for their own agendas. And when Jesus came on the scene in that environment as a rabbi, he was not exempt from those questions. And in Matthew 22, we see that he undergoes a barrage of questions, first from the Pharisees, then from the Sadducees, and then from a lawyer, a scribe, uh, put up to questioning him by both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so in Matthew 22, 34 through 40, we see that taking place. And I'll read it again. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law And the prophets. So, in this passage from Matthew, Jesus affirms the language of the Shema. And then he adds the love your neighbor commandment. And he says, when you put these two commandments together, you have the entirety of the law. I don't know about you, but I can remember two things better than I can remember 613. The law, love God, love your neighbor. That's the law. And it seems so simple in theory. But in our human nature, it's virtually impossible to adhere to in its entirety. We are, in our human state of being, incapable of fulfilling the law, the old covenant. Jesus came to testify to the truth. And the truth is that Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic law in its entirety on our behalf. His fulfillment of the law as the one and only perfectly sinless man made it possible. Made him an acceptable sacrifice for the atonement of our transgressions. Let's look quickly at Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 4. 
In this passage of Scripture, Paul knits together some of that tapestry of the Bible that I was talking about, showing us very clearly this thread of Christ connecting Old and New Testaments, connecting Old Covenant to New Covenant, more specifically the fulfillment of Old Covenant in the New Covenant, connecting humanity in its childhood to humanity on a sanctifying path to maturity in Christ. Here's what Paul writes. My point is this. Heirs, as long as they are minors, are no better than slaves. Though they are the owners of all the property, but they remain under guardians and trustees until the date set by the Father. So with us, while we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. Here's the important part. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. Jesus fulfilled the law. Born into it. Born fully human. And fully God. He's the only one who could do it. That's why he is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no one else that can do that. Which brings me to the last point in Jesus' response to the lawyer, the scribe, in Matthew 22.40. Where Jesus says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. See, not only did Jesus fulfill the entirety of the Old Testament law, but also the entirety of Old Testament messianic prophecy. And I want to look at just one example from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53. Now, as I read this passage of Scripture, I want you to think of all that you have ever learned about Jesus Christ. Everything that you've read in the New Testament about his life, his ministry, his sacrifice. And I want you to realize just how awesome it is that all of Isaiah's words here in Isaiah 53 were fulfilled in Jesus Christ nearly 750 years after he wrote them. Listen to this scripture from Isaiah. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity, and is one from whom others hide their faces. 
he was despised, and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish he shall see light. He shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, I can't help but be in awe of the greatness and the power of God. When I read this text from Isaiah, 750 years later, Jesus fulfills every bit of Isaiah 53 and much, much more prophecy. Think about that. If something I wrote endured, survived 750 years, that would be miraculous. But then to have every bit of it actually come to pass, well, that would be exponentially more miraculous. And as I was preparing this sermon after reading Isaiah's prophecy, I have to admit that I was a bit overwhelmed by the power of those words. I want you to imagine an act of love so very deep. An act of sacrifice so completely selfless. An act of redemption so full of mercy that every lash of the whip that wounded the flesh of our Lord. Every strike of the Roman hammer upon the head of the nails binding him to the cross. The piercing of his side by the soldier's spear that all of that would send ripples into the fabric of eternity past and into eternity future. 
so that a prophet might write of it seven and a half centuries before it occurred and that a people sitting in a sanctuary in Splendora, Texas might read those words 2,000 years later. That is amazing. How can you not but love a God that can do that? How can you not help but love Him with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind? And then, loving Him so completely, how can you not love those He created his children, our neighbors, with a love that is worthy of so great a sacrifice and so magnificent a gift. Love God. Love your neighbor. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.